Welcome to the OIS Podcast. If you want to learn more about what's happening in gene therapy, you've come to the right place. Today, our host, Dr. Firas Rehal, chats with Dr. Thomas Chalberg, who has founded multiple gene therapy startups and developed novel therapies to improve people's vision and eye health. Dr. Chalberg has been recognized by the World Economic Forum as a technology pioneer by all license for Breakthrough Deal of the Year and by the Foundation Fighting Blindness for his pioneering contributions to research and development. Take it away, Firas. Welcome back, everyone, to the OIS Retina podcast. Again, this is Firas Rahal, a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles and partner uh, at Excite Ventures in New York City, although that's kind of West Coast, East Coast. Uh, I'm uh, delighted to have as a guest today, Thomas Chalberg, who is known to many of you from his history in ophthalmology. He has other interests and activities. We're going to hear about those in a minute. I'll uh, give you a couple of his titles, but there are many, so I'll I'll keep, I don't want to go too long, and I'll let him introduce some of these concepts himself. Tom is currently founder and the managing director of Polymerase Capital. He's the executive chairman of Irenix Medical. You'll correct me on pronunciation later. Uh, founder and CEO of Genescence Corp. Again, uh, a pronunciation might be wrong, and you, you hold several board positions that we may touch upon later in the discussion. Thank you, Tom, for joining, and uh, please correct me on any of those uh, titles and uh, share with us some of the things that you're doing now. But I want to do I do want to get into your background and education before we delve all the way into what you're doing now. Sure, that sounds great for us, and um, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'll start, you know, with your educational background, with the, which uh, has quite a pedigree. I, I think people will have heard of some of these schools. Um, uh, Tom has a bachelor's in biochemistry from Harvard, a PhD from Stanford in genetics, but also with links into ophthalmology. I, I want to hear about that, and an MBA from uh, Cal Berkeley. All amazing schools. I'm here in California. I grew up in the Northeast. We've all heard of these uh, little tiny colleges you attended. Uh, good for you. That's very impressive. What what about those things led you to ophthalmology? It sounds like the PhD program had some tie-in or maybe not. Maybe you can share with us how you ended up heading towards the ophthalmology space. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, you know, I first became interested in ophthalmology because a friend of mine from college uh, was diagnosed with RP at a young age. And, um, you know, when I was at Stanford, I, I joined a gene therapy lab for my dissertation work, Michelle Kalos's lab in the, in the genetics department. And our focus was site specific genomic integration. And this was like first generation gene editing, you know, back in the pre CRISPR days, um, in 2001 and, you know, working in a gene therapy lab, um, and, and, you know, having this interest in ophthalmology because of my friend, I, I began to wonder, you know, is there a role for gene therapy in retinal diseases like RP? Um, and, and it was right around that time when um, one of my heroes in the field, Gene Bennett, uh, came to give a talk at Stanford. And um, we started a collaboration, you know, with her lab while I was in grad school. And, and that was my first foray into ophthalmology. Um, you know, we, we then formed a collaboration with the ophthalmology group at Stanford and to try to advance the project. And that was with Doug Volrath and, and then later Mark Blumenkrantz and Daniel Palanker. And, um, 
you know, Mark ended up being on my thesis committee and was a terrific mentor to me as, as we were co-founding Avalanche. Uh, Mark's a great guy and a friend, and he's actually been on this program. Uh, some of the names that come up occasionally, uh, they've also been on the program before, but uh, we know Mark very well in the retina circles, and I know you have this history with him through Avalanche, and I want to touch upon that a little bit, your early history in ophthalmology and, and the way you may be known to a lot of the people in my space, clinical retinal diseases and treatment is through your time at Genentech. And that was an interesting time. I want to hear a little bit about that, if you don't mind. And also in your stint with Avalanche, uh, why don't you start with Genentech? When was that? What was your role? And if I'm correct, that was around the time of the Lucentis launch and early commercialization. That must have been a pretty exciting time there. Yeah, that's right. So I started at Genentech, you know, directly after grad school. And, and it was late 2005, just prior to the launch of Lucentis. And, and I know I wanted to continue to work in ophthalmology. And that was a really a passion of mine through grad school. Um, and with the Lucentis launch coming, it was a great time to, to join. You know, Genentech wasn't really an ophthalmology company at the time before the launch of Lucentis. It was more serendipitous that sort of the anti-VEGF mechanism being studied for oncology, you know, had applications in retina. Um, but Genentech built a, a terrific team and so many of the people uh, that were there at the time working on Lucentis ended up pursuing careers in the ophthalmology industry and in large and small companies, including, you know, folks that I had a great pleasure of working with um, that, that uh, you know, ended up going on to, to many other companies from there. So it, it really, truly was an exciting time. And, and I think, you know, a, a really interesting and innovative time throughout Retina with sort of the discovery of Avastin, the launch of Lucentis, um, you know, and, and sort of the competition historical with Macugen that was happening and, and some of the things that happened after that. So it, it was a great learning experience and, and a great way to train and learn about the biotech industry for sure. You know, it was a pioneering work and pioneering time and definitely Genentech. I am aware that it was only ophthalmology by that point, uh, but, you know, they've, you know, they've now run with it and Roche, of course, uh, keeps developing great ophthalmology products. I was involved in the CAT trial and studying Avastin versus, you know, Lucentis. It was all brilliant stuff and seems like ancient history now, but it still carries a lot of weight. Around the time you were there, there may have been also, Regeneron may have been starting to develop ILEA. I don't know. Did you, were you aware of the, what was then known as VEGF trap? And if so, what were you guys thinking about that? Did you have any notions about that mechanism versus yours? Yeah, I mean, of course, we were following it closely, and and the you know oncology teams were also following VEGF trap for the oncology applications as well. Um, so we were sort of following it on on both sides, uh, if you will. Um, and you know, there was a lot of speculation about the basic science. You know, the VEGF and PLGF versus VEGF only, the pharmacokinetics of dosing, and you know, sort of affinity and penetration, and these sorts of basic science questions that we would ask. You know, and it was kind of like with Macugen, people talked about VEGF 165 versus yes. other isoforms, right? And, and, and was there a role of, you know, what was the pathologic isoform? And that's kind of like what you talk about before there's clinical data um, is some of these interesting basic science questions. But I think, you know, what, what was really smart on Regeneron's behalf was to pursue sort of every other month dosing, which, you know, really helped them differentiate from Lucentis and, and grab a lot of um, attention and market share out of the gate. So I think they, they ran a really good clinical development program. And, you know, at, at Genentech, of course, we were focused on, you know, just extending the, the um, 
sort of reach of Lucentis through you know, more indications, through uh, you know, building a, a really strong safety database, um, through how, how to differentiate from Avast and et cetera. So there was a lot going on in those days as well. And, and, and it was exciting to see that sort of evolving competitive landscape. Yeah, there was totally a lot of heavy lifting for Genentech, that and a lot more. And um, Regeneron, you know, you're right. They designed their clinical trials. It's always, there's always advantageous points to being the second one to design the clinical trial and see where you can, you know, extend out uh, literally and figuratively uh, the product design and clinical utility. And we're seeing that now again with Roche, Roche uh, developing, you know, Vivismo and their clinical trial set up to go further and further. It's it's all part of the development. It's great. I want to inquire briefly with you because I want to give you a chance later, of course, to do the current stuff. But on the Avalanche program, I, I happen to know Mark Blumenkrantz and Steve Schwartz very well. They're both good friends of mine and I admire their work. And I know you guys took that thing off the ground. It was kind of in the early stages of this, at least to me, maybe in outside ophthalmology, and you would know this better than I would, the early stages of this thinking about biofactory model. I'm intrigued by this and what you guys were thinking about that at that time. Did you get this idea from cancer or other models, or are these really the earliest biofactory models, the ones we're seeing in ophthalmology in this last decade? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, Avalanche was my first company, and, and I learned so much from that experience. I, I found founded the company with Mark Blumenkrantz back in 2006, and you know, at the time, gene therapy—you're right—was still relatively new in ophthalmology, and and most people were interested in gene therapy really for genetic diseases, which were sort of cell autonomous correction of of you know inherited defects. Um, but we thought, you know, that there was a role for gene therapy in major diseases. And, and I still really believe that's true. And, and that's part of what we're doing with Genesance and osteoarthritis and, and with Exora and, and glaucoma. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, you know, we actually came up with, we coined the term biofactory because uh, the, it had previously only really been used for production of recombinant proteins, you know, in big you know, production facilities. And we said, you know, instead of producing this in a big steel tank in South San Francisco um, or Singapore and, and, and sort of shipping the protein around the world, what if we decentralized that and made, you know, every eye a biofactory to produce its own VEGF? And, and, and that, that concept was really exciting. I mean, at the time, of course, Genzyme um, had also a competing program with um, you know, sort of a related anti-VEGF uh, intravitreal AB2 and, and, um, you know, I think those were the only two examples in, in ophthalmology. Um, you know, there were other examples potentially in hemophilia where it was a genetic defect, but still the liver was being used sort of as a biofactory of sorts, although they didn't use that, you know, that exact term. So um, I'm happy to see that that concept is, you know, living on strong and, and, and hopefully, you know, will will come to patients um, in the form of an approved product someday. That's interesting. And I, I had thought, it was a new term to me, and I'm glad to hear that, you know, I didn't miss the boat for a decade before that this was a relatively new term. It's a perfect term for the concept. Actually, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys may have coined this thing because it, it's a perfect term. The eye is an excellent model for this, as you know, you're, you've been involved in other research too, and uh, researchers sometimes kind of come to the eye because of the ability to have this little sequestered, encapsulated excellent organ with great feedback information. So 
the biofactory term. I, you heard it here second, but first from Chalberg. I love ah, it. Well, someone uh, someone will correct me if 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 no no if no, we're no wrong. I, I, but I think the you know the, the at least the concept of the ocular biofactory, which we trademarked, was certainly you know the first the first use in the field. So um, cool. no, that's cool. I, I want to move on to the uh, glaucoma product, but one final sort of broad question for you, given your expertise. What about um, safety of gene therapy? You have any, I know you're not on the clinical side per se, although you have a lot of experience in you know developing these products. Uh, there's been some questions about safety now and where to administer these viral vectors if we're using viral vectors into the eye to one, most be efficacious for the retina, but also to be most safe for the eye and the patient in general. And there's been some debate on this, as you know, at Virum, the current avalanche and, and Regenex Bio are approaching this in different anatomic locations. Mm -hmm. Do you have any broad thoughts about this? Not specifically those products, but your, your own thinking. Is, is there an inherent reason to think about safety one way or the other? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's really interesting because I think there have been some key learnings and, and there are still some questions, right. And, and, and obviously there are still some challenges with intravitreal gene therapy. Um, you know, the initial thing was the initial barrier was getting something that worked well enough intravitreally, right. Those early vectors did not penetrate through the ILM and, and really did not deliver, you know, sufficient, DNA to the retina. And, and this was the program that we started with this 7 and 8 vector that, that later became Adverum 022. And I think the data now has you know, really shown that that works, that you can use an ocular biofactory to provide continuous VEGF suppression and treat AMD long-term following a single intravitreal injection. And that's a really exciting and, and promising development. Um, <clears throat> but I think, you know, as, as sort of often happens in innovation, a new problem came up, right? The, the, the main one here being inflammation. And I don't think we fully understand the immunology yet. And, and if, you know, for example, why does it seem to impact diabetics more than wet AMD patients, right? I, I don't think we fully sort of understand that yet. But I think as a field, we're gaining a much better appreciation for the mechanisms involved and, and how you can design better and safer gene therapy products. And, and I'm not involved with, you know, Virum anymore, so I can't speak to their current strategy. But obviously I wish them well. And, and it's a tremendous unmet need for patients who are struggling managing, you know, wet AMD and having many injections, I guess, you know, I will say, I think there's an opportunity to really lead in this area. And I think the field has a lot to learn. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, there will be continued innovation in terms of uh, understanding the immunology, um, whether that's, you know, unmethylated CPGs and NTLR9 activation, or whether that's relating to, uh, you know, certain kind of tolerizing strategies like what we're working on at Chameleon. I think there's a number of ways that, you know, we can address and, and make these gene therapy products safer. And I do think that route has a lot to do with it, right? We don't see this kind of inflammation subretinally. We don't see this kind of information necessarily in the anterior chamber. Um, it might be something that, you know, is a, is a, is more of a challenge in certain populations, especially with intravitreal uh, AAV. Totally agree. Still a lot to be learned and a lot of years of hard work for people. And it's a very promising and exciting area. I'll shift gears to one last uh, area in your recent history that's, you said unmet need. This is one of the ultimate unmet needs is high myopia. myopia. For us in retina, pathologic myopia, but let's just call it myopia for a minute. You were uh, closely involved with Cyclass Vision. You guys brought that a long way, ultimately, uh, 
partnering with Cooper Vision and, and Essilor. Why don't you tell us about the Sight Glass experience, the Sight Glass product mechanism of action, um, and your recollections of that and where they are now uh, along the way to a commercial clinical path? Yeah, sure. So Cyclas was a really terrific project and, and from a complexity perspective was sort of on the other end of the spectrum from something like avalanche and, and gene therapy. Um, I mean, in the end of the day, it was Cyclas has a novel spectacle um, that you can wear, that kids wear to prevent myopia progression. And so it's not just a device instead of a biologic, but it's a, a quite simple device being just a spectacle lens. So, you know, I, I um, through sort of previous work had um, gotten to know Jay and Maureen Knights, who are uh, vision research experts at the University of Washington. And they made a discovery that the causative mutations in syndromic high myopia, specifically Bornholm eye syndrome, um, and the gene had been mapped, the gene MIP1, MYP1, had been mapped to XQ22, um, excuse me, XQ28, that the cause of mutation were actually in the LNM cone opsin genes. And that led them to a hypothesis that high contrast in the retina, sort of high contrast signaling through bipolar cells, um, caused myopia to progress and that modifying that could help treat myopia. And so the fact that, you know, this could be achieved in a, in a simple approach using eyeglasses, you know, what we call a non-significant risk device, um, was even more compelling. And so the, the NICE lab had run an initial experiment where kids wore a normal single vision lens in one eye and wore, you know, their sort of modified um, contrast modifying lens in, in the contralateral eye. And it worked to slow down myopia in a small trial with 13 kids. Right. So, so this was kind of incredible. We still had a lot of work to do. We had to figure out how to manufacture the lenses in a scalable way. We had to figure out how to fit sort of, you know, what ultimately would be a class two medical device into, you know, a, a, a sort of distribution system and, and, and optical lab ecosystem that really operated on a class one exempt basis. Right. And, and, um, we had to, you know, design and execute a large pivotal study. And so that was what the company set out to do and, and got really, really great data showing that um, in a, in a well-designed study, you know, we could, um, you know, slow and stop myopia in, in kids ages six to 10. So, so some really exciting work. And, and that was what really attracted both Cooper vision and, and Essilor to um, come together to acquire the company and, and launch the products. It, there's so many potential positives out of this. I, I would use up 10 podcast uh, time slots to get into it, but um, you have the sense that this would be uh, not just numerical, but would prevent pathologic myopia for us retina guys. That's who a lot of the people are that are listening here. You know, the, the anatomic uh, myopia that is uh, causative of all these conditions, retinal detachment, macular degeneration, other things. Is that the ultimate goal here, other than obviously correcting vision, but also to maybe have these anatomic considerations improved upon? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons why lower myopia is better, right? Why do you want to slow down myopia? I mean, the the, the, the simplest is, you know, that you can um, do more things uncorrected, right? If you can drive without correction, great. If you can you know, find your glasses, if you've lost them without correction, great. You know, lower is a lower number is always better. Um, but as you point out, you know, 
with, with an increase in high myopia, there are increased complications with myopic maculopathy, with retinal detachment, and even with glaucoma and cataracts occurred a higher rate in patients with higher myopia. And in fact, there's no, you know, this was a recent paper um, from Mark Bullimore and others that, that there really is no safe level of myopia that sort of every, um, you know, there's a 67% increase in myopic maculopathy for every single diopter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starting in emetropia. And so, you know, it sort of increases exponentially, right. As you, as you go, because every additional diopter gives you a, a 1.76 higher chance of developing, developing that. Um, so if we can bring patients down that curve, right, no matter where they would have been, if we can bring them down to a lower number, that's, that's beneficial to patients reduces, you know, um, retinal complications and, and things like retinal attachment as well. That's amazing. That's really amazing. That's a good segue uh, with regard to um, the glaucoma risk you mentioned. Exora, which you're currently involved with, let's talk about some of the current things you're involved with. I'll give you a chance to get into that. I want to hear about them. Even though this is a retina program, we create a lot of glaucoma in retina surgery, so we might want to learn about this. This too is a biofactory model, I think, but maybe you can explain to us about Exora, its mechanism, what you're doing there, and your involvement. Yeah, sure. So um, Exora is a new investment that we're really excited about, and and it's coming out of some scientists' um, labs at Trinity College in Dublin. And the idea is really simple that, you know, in glaucoma, intraocular pressure increases because of outflow resistance, right? And that's the primary mechanism behind the pathophysiology. And this is really from, as a consequence of aging, that the the trabecular meshwork becomes fibrotic and deposits more extracellular matrix, which then clogs up the conventional outflow pathway. And so this is a gene therapy, an AAV vector that encodes an enzyme that breaks down the extracellular matrix in the trabecular meshwork. And, and so it's exactly right. It's a biofactory that, that produces a, an MMP, a matrix metallic proteinase. Um, it's delivered intracamerally, sort of the front of the eye. And that seems to be really well tolerated uh, in, in the preclinical data so far. It's also shown efficacy in multiple glaucoma mouse models. So we're excited about developing this going forward. So I'm guessing a little bit now, and maybe you know the answer, and maybe you can or cannot discuss it, but is then the target tissue for the uh, the vector, the iris or ciliary body, uh, is it, it directly the trabecular meshwork that's receiving this and being transformed in whatever way and having the metalloproteinases developed right out of the TM, or is it another tissue that's receiving the vector and making the protein? Yeah, so it's actually, you know, because of this specific um, serotype that, you know, and research that we followed, uh, the biofactory it's tissue itself is the corneal endothelium, okay. uh, which is where we're producing. And, and, and for, you know, this is a polarized cell that, that really secretes purely apically, so into the aqueous. And then, you know, just because of the aqueous flow, it travels from there, you know, to, to sort of throughout the, the TM. Um, so you know, it seems to work really well. And, and, you know, so far, at least in the the preclinical data, we're excited, we're encouraged by great safety data and and the fact that we can, you know, use the corneal endothelium exactly as that, as as a biofactory for the MMP. I think the safety data here is really relevant, even in this early, you know, preclinical modeling, obviously, because clinically, we're always a little worried about the corneal endothelium, all of us as surgeons, whether in the front or back of the eye, it's a 
kind of a fastidious cell, you know, you too much trauma during surgery, surgery is going longer. You've probably come aware of this. Uh, it, it, you can lose them pretty easily. There's good companies, one of which I'm invested in in the cornea space that is trying to, you know, augment the corneal endothelium for conditions like Fuchs dystrophy. So safety, early safety signals there are very important for that particular cell line. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and also, you know, because, you know, largely because of Fuchs dystrophy and other sorts of, you know, safety issues with surgery and so on, we have pretty exquisite tools to be able to monitor the corneal health, um, you know, longitudinally, which is also really nice. We can use um, specular microscopy to count cells and, and look at the average size of cells. And we can also use uh, corneal pachymetry to sort of say, you know, is the, are, is the endothelial pump function working to keep the cornea sort of at a given level of thickness and, you know, or if it starts to fail, do we see um, some increases? And so, um, you know, thankfully we have good clinical tools that where we can follow the corneal health. And then we can also apply those preclinically, for example, in non-human primates and in, in the, you know, early safety research. Makes a lot of sense. And, and the, the, the mechanism of action um, really hits glaucoma at its root cause, uh, you know, exit of aqueous and good for you. I, that, I, I'm interested to see how that plays out. That's really fascinating. Let's move to another product you're very involved with. Obviously, we mentioned it earlier. I pronounced it Irenix. If that's wrong, please correct me. I'm familiar with what some of the things uh, that right, Irenix, right. It, it sounds like there's other things going on there that I didn't know about, but let's start with the basics. What is the main asset that Irenix is uh, bringing along? What's your involvement and, and where are you with that asset before we even get into any other uh, sort of pipeline products? Yeah, sure. So Irenix is a really interesting company that, that originally came from the University of Michigan. And Chara Basurli and Stephen Smith, who are two ophthalmologists and, and retina specialists, were the founders. Um, Stephen Smith did his residency at Stanford and, and reached out to me and we agreed to meet. And he's a really talented physician and entrepreneur. So it's been terrific working with him. Um, you know, the, the lead product, you know, really as practicing retina specialists, um, they looked at, you know, what's so sort of fraught about giving, you know, intravitreal injections. And, and it's not just the actual, you know, act of putting the needle in and pushing the plunger. It's also all of the um, things that go around that. So what about the anesthesia that's needed? Sometimes in, in many patients, drops are not sufficient, right? Um, what about the antiseptic that's needed, right? Which, which is um, in many cases, you know, betadine, which can be, you know, toxic itself. So uh, you know, I, I think the um, being practicing ophthalmologist really gave them some key clinical insights into how to, you know, re-engineer the process of intravitreal injection. So the, the IJEC system, which, I, you know, what, what you were referring to is a, is a um, it combines cooling anesthesia. So anesthesia rather than, rather than using lidocaine, a lidocaine gel or a subconjunctival lidocaine, it uses cooling anesthesia and then combines that with uh, drug delivery. So the idea is you can hold the um, injector against the eye for a few seconds, and then that cooling provides the anesthesia that's necessary to actually, you know, and then push the button and in goes the, the drug. And so we developed this really to improve the patient experience while also creating a platform for smart drug delivery. And so, you know, the next step is to further refine this technology. And, and also we're looking at, um, you know, what other, 
settings, you know, would benefit from this kind of precise delivery. And a, a good example could be super choroidal delivery, right? This is a route that, um, you know, is, is of greater interest. And, you know, obviously there's the ClearSide device and, and the Regenex program and others. So I think, you know, because the platform has been shown to be really, really precise at drug delivery volumes and, and locations, uh, we're looking at how to harness that to improve the patient experience. It's a it's a valid need, even without uh, the, the the latter part. You know, the patient experience, i.e., betadine and the anesthetic. Having done twenty five or thirty of these today, and probably do thirty to forty of them tomorrow in a, a busier clinic, uh, and a practicing retina specialist myself, that is really the negative part of the experience for the patient. So. If you can, it may seem trivial to somebody who's not involved in this business, but if you can improve that part of the experience for, you know, these people are getting these things uh, ad nauseum for life, right? So it, it, it really makes a difference. Good for you that you're looking at it. And it sounds like, so it's an automated injector as well. So there is a drug delivery aspect. Um, there may be some other uh, pipeline programs there that you can talk about or, or not at this point. Yeah, there, there, there is a um, sort of stealth drug development program and, and, and we're, that we're pretty excited about. What I can share is that we have preclinical and clinical data that suggests it offers significant benefits for patients and, and the market is, is really large. So um, it's been fun to develop and, and, you know, Stephen and the executive team has done a great job preparing it for clinical development. So hopefully we'll be able to share more about that um, in, next year. Is the uh, delivery device the first one we were talking about? in clinical testing now, clinical trials? Yes, we, we recently completed the first uh, in human of the drug relief platform and that met the primary endpoint. Um, and so we're preparing for a larger clinical program for the for, for both and, and plan to unveil this uh, along with top line results next year. Great, so that means you're in that part of development that we all love the, the most, I'm being facetious, which is uh, raising money. Raising <laughs> That's, <capital>. right. <laughs> okay. That's right. That's right. Well, let it be known, uh, Tom Chalberg might be coming to knock at your door soon for, for you out there who are investment-minded. Um, last company, uh, tell me a little bit about Chameleon. I know it's not in the eye space, but that sounds also like a gene therapy platform company. And maybe down the road, it, it has relevance in the eye space. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so Chameleon is really exciting. I, you know, I, I um, It's been a pleasure. I, I, I recently joined, uh, let's see late last year as an independent board member. Um, and, and it's part of a new area that I'll call sort of immunogene therapy, right? And, and you mentioned some of the challenges with, with gene therapy and intravitreal gene therapy being inflammation as an example. Um, and, you know, I, as I alluded to, I think we're learning a lot more about how gene therapy vectors are interacting with the immune system. Um, you know, in the eye, for example, you have antigen presenting cells, generally they're hylocytes which, which uh, sort of present the antigen to the immune system. And you have TLR9 signaling from unmethylated CPGs. And, and I think, you know, as we learn more, you know, this, this whole thing is going to develop into a really exciting field that sort of, you know, lets us do a lot more with some of these gene therapy vectors. So Chameleon has a technology called Evader, and it uses an AAV that's actually, it, we call it an enveloped virus. So it's inside of a lipid bilayer. Um, and the envelope is produced by a special system, basically, so that there are checkpoint proteins, uh, PD-1 and CTLA-4, that are um, 
embedded in the envelope, right? And the idea is basically that they induce tolerance, that these checkpoint proteins can help produce T-cell energy and immune tolerance, and that could enable repeat dosing. It could help with inflammation. And I think certainly there could be some, op some opportunities in, in, in ophthalmology here. That's cool. Thank you. With, with that, let, let me ask you a couple of questions about the future before we close. And this is always, you know, crystal ball stuff. So feel free to go wherever you want with it. You know, gene therapy and ophthalmology has been talked about intensely. Now we're into phase three clinical trials and in products. So we're, as you just mentioned, we're really right there. We're going to see this take off uh, in all likelihood in the very near future. Where, where's this going? You're an expert in this area. You, you delved in it in the eye and in other spaces, the lung. Is gene therapy going to replace what we do? Are, you know, the, the whole protein wave of 20 years ago, monoclonal antibodies and those therapies going to go by the wayside? I know this is crystal ball stuff. Is it just going to be an adjunct? Where, where do you see this going? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a great question. And of course, we don't know for sure, right? You know, but but going all the way back to when I started in this field, like back in 2001, I've been really excited about gene therapy and ophthalmology. And, and I think, and continue to think um, and hope for patients that there'll be a role, you know, for gene therapy, not just in rare diseases, but also in major diseases like glaucoma, neovascular AMD, dry AMD. Um, you know, and, and when you look at diseases that happen more slowly over time as compared to wet AMD, right? I think wet AMD is a little bit of an exception because patients lose, you know, three plus lines of vision on average in, in a year. Um, but when you look at diseases like dry AMD or glaucoma where vision loss might happen more slowly, you know, gene therapy on a relative basis is, is probably even more attractive because, you know, frequent intravitreal injections are, are more cumbersome in settings where, where vision loss isn't as rapid. And, and so there, you know, there might be some inherent dynamics that sort of favor gene therapy um, for these other indications. You know, I, I don't think it's going to replace protein therapy, right? I mean, I think, you know, there, there are going to be some modalities where, where protein therapy just is inherently, you know, has an advantage and maybe even small molecules have an advantage or where, you know, steroids or other things continue to be used. But, but I think there, you know, there will be a role to play, especially in these cr more chronic smoldering diseases. You know, I think CRISPR is really exciting. I, you know, that's one of the areas where, you know, you can actually go in and fix a problem, right. Versus just treating, um, treating the, the, the pathophysiology or, or sort of treating the major symptom. Um, delivery is a big challenge with, with, with CRISPR. Uh, there are issues with immunogenicity. That's a bacterial protein. And so you, know, you could see some, some, you know, challenges there. I think there's a long way to go in many settings, but that's certainly among the things we're watching. Um, I'd also, you know, be really interested to see, you know, beyond retina, where can this go in ophthalmology? So, you know, certainly front of the eye diseases, we're looking at glaucoma with Exora. Um, there are some interesting projects looking at corneal diseases uh, with with genetic medicines, whether that's Fuchs dystrophy or whether it's, um, you know, other kinds of, of corneal uh, issues. I, I think there's some, you know, potentially really exciting um, future there as well. You anticipated my actual last corollary question, which was the CRISPR comment you made. Just a follow up to that. Uh, we haven't seen that as much yet in the eye. I think that I read sort of background stuff in other organ systems, other medical disciplines. You have experience in some of the other disciplines. Is this 
coming to the eye more? Are we are we going to see more of this in the in the near term in the eye? Is it seeing a lot of action in other areas that you're more familiar with than we are? Well, it's certainly um, come a long way in the area of uh, sort of ex vivo blood type treatments, right? And so, you know, with those, you know, whether it's lentivirus or or a CRISPR delivery, you know, definitely a genomic integration approach. And those have come a long way, for example, in the CAR-T um, field, which is looking treating uh, blood cancers and, and now solid tumors. It's also come a long way in, you know, things like sickle cell um, disease and, and beta thalassemia, uh, where this is really advanced. You know, the issue is that if you can take human blood out and modify it using CRISPR or a lentivirus or other sort of genomic uh, gene editing approach, um, that's fairly well understood how to do, but it's much harder to deliver, you know, to deliver CRISPR and, and sort of genetic engineering uh, factors in vivo, right in the body, and 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 the retina is no exception. I mean, ILM is still a very profound barrier. Um, subretinal injection, you know, is acceptable for you know some uh, some diseases, but not others. And so we're learning a lot about the genomic side, and I think probably the area that's uh, trailing a little bit is how do we deliver really efficiently these two retinal cells, right? Is that using a virus like AAV? Well, you know, that's, um, that's being worked on, but, you know, still some challenges we mentioned, is it used, it, it, are they being delivered using a non-viral delivery, which is also a channel like a lipid nanoparticle um, or, a, you know, um, compacted, you know, nanoparticle. Those are challenging as well. They don't deliver very efficiently, right? F especially following an intravitreal approach. So, um, you know, I, I hope we see some advances in terms of uh, really efficient delivery to different kinds of retinal cells. Um, and, and if we can do that, then I think, you know, th there'll be a, uh, you know, more obvious role for CRISPR in a number of diseases, uh, in, in, you know, treating um, retinal diseases. Wow. Thank you. This has all been really fascinating and super educational for me. I'm sure also for all the listeners, this is stuff we don't talk about every day in the clinic, nor in investment circles necessarily, but this is really high level. It's really impressive. Uh, Tom Chalberg, uh, ophthalmology entrepreneur, uh, scientist, thank you, and innovator. And thank you for coming on and sharing all these details about all these great potential uh, products. And thank you for being in the ophthalmology space, trying to develop them. We, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again for inviting me, Frost, and, and thanks for um, having me on. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS podcast. Be sure to listen in next week as we discuss the latest innovations in ophthalmology with experts in science, medicine, and industry. Subscribe to our iTunes channel so you don't miss a thing. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at OIS.net.